For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34. What is the point of communion? And, uh, <clears throat> you know, if you have church background, you probably have either uh, taken communion or you've witnessed people taking communion. And depending on what denomination you were attending, there's probably some confusion as to why there's so much difference between churches uh, in their view of communion. Well, the passage we're going to look at isn't really talking specifically about um, communion, but I think it's an, an awesome opportunity for us to look at this since uh, Paul is uh, explaining to the Corinthians why uh, God gave us this ritual. He says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. So we know that the Corinthian uh, community was pretty wild. And um, people were obviously given to excess. They were using their freedom in Christ to essentially be selfish. And as we'll find out in a few weeks, you know, some people were uh, using this as an opportunity to show that they were more spiritual than other people in their community by speaking in tongues. We know that, you know, some of the women were doing things that were scandalizing not only the people in their spiritual community, but also outsiders who were looking at them and thinking that there was some crazy stuff going on. So apparently, Paul looks at their fellowship meetings, their time together, not as something that will build them up spiritually, but actually does more harm than good. It actually tears them down because of their selfishness. He says in verse 18 and 19, In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. We know that there was conflict brewing in this community. But there was also this socioeconomic divide. There were the haves and have-nots. Where apparently, the wealthy, those who come from the upper class, we're sort of looking down on those who they regard as lower class uh, people. And that might have played into what we were talking about last week where maybe some of the upper class women were more care, they cared more about their fashion than what would be um, you know, offensive to the more conservative segment of their community and really their culture. And he says in verse 19, no doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Which might be a sarcastic statement on Paul's part. He's saying something to the effect of, you know, of course you have to make up these factions in order to show which one of you is better than the other. He says in verse 20 through 22, when you come together, it's not the Lord's supper you eat. For as you eat it, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. Okay, I think this requires a little bit of explanation. Now, they're obviously celebrating the Lord's Supper, which you know, includes taking bread and wine and eating that. 
And he's saying that when they gathered together, that some were like eating more than others, and some were leaving the meeting hungry. Now, <clears throat> he isn't saying that, you know, some people were snatching up the bread and like carbo-loading or something like that. There was actually um, a, a feast that they would have, which Jude actually calls the love uh, meals or fellowship meals, uh, where in Jude 12 he says, when these people eat with you in your fellowship meals commemorating the Lord's love, they are likely dangerous reefs that can shipwreck you. He's talking about the false teachers there. So apparently the pattern in the New Testament church was that people would gather together. They would have, you know, a meeting like this where there would be some content, some scripture that was taught. And then there was prayer and some time where they would hang out. And in many of those cases, apparently they incorporated like a dinner where people would bring food and uh, it was an opportunity for people to have a meal together and to share the love of Christ with one another. And then that would end with them commemorating what Christ has done through communion. So apparently there were some people, maybe those who are poor, who wouldn't contribute anything probably and come to these fellowship gatherings where there was a meal and they would just, you know, go through the line and they would just pile their plate, uh, you know, with food. And it was just this mountain of food. Meanwhile, there were people, you know, at the end of the line who didn't get anything. And so Paul was calling them out and saying, you guys are coming into this time where you're supposed to be sharing Christ's love with one another. This should be a time where we're building one another up. And yet, it's an opportunity for you guys to express your incredible selfishness. And so he's pointing out that this contradicts the heart of what God wants us to express through communion. Now, <clears throat> when he talks about the Lord's Supper, I think uh, it's important for us, first of all, to think about what communion isn't, okay? Because that's what he's referring to. I think, first of all, Communion isn't about consuming the literal body and blood of Jesus, okay? Depending on what denomination you attended growing up, you know, you might have been taught that when you take the host or the bread and you drink some of the wine, that you are literally uh, eating and drinking the blood and body of the flesh of Jesus. Now, Anybody who looks at the bread and the wine would say to themselves, well, this doesn't look like flesh. It doesn't look like blood. But um, what scholars have taught is that the accident is bread and wine, but the essence is Jesus' flesh and blood. And so even though it may appear to be bread and wine, it's literally Jesus' body and blood. And so I think one of the reasons why the church headed into this direction throughout history was that this was such a solemn ritual that a lot of superstition started to grow up around it. I remember growing up, uh, I was actually an altar boy at one point. And, um, you know, there was so much reverence for the host that I had this um, communion catcher, which was basically a communion crumb catcher. So that when somebody, you know, stood up 
to receive communion from the priest, you know, I would have to slip the communion plate underneath their mouth to make sure that none of the crumbs uh, or parts of Jesus would fall onto the floor and desecrate Jesus. And at the end of the meal, what would happen is the priest would take uh, the communion plate and dust off all the crumbs into the wine so as to make sure that uh, not even one single morsel of Jesus would be wasted. And so, you know, uh, you know there, there's, throughout history, there has been a lot of an obsession with the way you take communion. Partly because it's the only, uh, one of the only rituals in the New Testament that Jesus prescribes. I remember at one point the, the um, church that I was a part of said that you could not um, chew the wafer. And so the priest would have to lay it onto your tongue and you couldn't chew it. Uh, you'd have to let it melt because it was not cool to bite into Jesus. You had to let him melt in your mouth. Now, you know, superstition sprung up around this ritual of communion. This is well documented. For example, Philip Schaff, who is um, a theologian, uh, an expert in church history, says the denial of the cup to the laity, the non-clergy, became common in the 13th century. It was at first due to the fear of uh, profanation by spilling the consecrated blood of Christ. The Council of Constance threatened with excommunication all who distributed the wine to the laity. So at one point, common people were not allowed to actually drink the wine because there was fear that some of the wine would spill onto the floor and desecrate Jesus' blood. And so there was a threat of excommunication, which if you understand that, you know, the church throughout history has claimed that they are the ones who dispense God's grace which is required for maintaining one's salvation. And so as a result, they were essentially threatening that if anybody distributed wine to someone who is not a, a clergy member, that they would be sentenced to hell. Because apart from the church, you're unable to, to receive God's grace. He goes on to say, in another case related by Etienne of Bourbon, is a farmer who, wanting to be rich, followed the advice of a friend and placed the host on one of his beehives, this is, you know, the, the bread, the wafer. I don't know why he did this. He thought that maybe he could pack his uh, hives full of honey because of the host. The bees, with great reverence, made a miniature church containing an altar on which they placed the sacred morsel. All the bees from the, neighbor, the neighborhood were attracted and sang beautiful melodies. It's quite unlikely. Um... I know because, you know, I used to keep bees and they don't sing, they buzz, right? The rustic farmer went out expecting to find the hives overflowing with honey, but to his amazement found them all empty except one in which the host had been deposited. And the bees attacked him fiercely. Not sure what that's all about. <laughs> they, were, they were defending Jesus, right? This is from uh, Jacob Marcus who is a historian, expert in uh, church history. Um, in his book called The Jews of Passau, he says, under torture, 10 Jews admitted that they had obtained several communion wafers and that when they had stabbed the host, blood flowed from them in the form of a child arose. There was these allegations of host desecration. 
where they uh, made up these stories about Jewish people stealing hosts uh, from church uh, and, you know, desecrating it in a variety of different ways. Four of the arrested Jews converted to Christianity and were treated kindly as a result. They were merely beheaded. The rest were torn with hot pincers and burned alive. It's pretty savage, you know. And this goes to show when, when you have a, a doctrinal aberration that creeps into Scripture where people start to add things to what the Bible says. Because, you know, this is, none of this stuff is, is contained in the Bible whatsoever. But you can see why God is so particular about keeping false teaching out of the church. Because it can lead to things like this. You know, another argument is that, you know, we don't take some of Jesus' statements literalistically. For example, in John 15, verse 1, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. I mean, obviously he's using a metaphor. He's not saying he's a literal literal vine. Or, for example, in uh, John 10, verse 9, where he says, I am the door. He's not saying he's a literal door. You don't go around to your roommate and say, dude, you need to chill out. Slam that door, you're disrespecting Jesus, right? (laughs) Secondly, communion isn't something you do to maintain your salvation. Um, As I mentioned earlier, uh, some denominations teach that unless you continually receive communion, which can only be administered by the priest, uh, in the church, that you're really um, in a place where you should be uncertain about your salvation. And yet, the Bible explicitly teaches that God gives us eternal security once we receive Christ. That Jesus, when he came and died for us, that he didn't just pay for like the things that we did wrong in the past but that he covered all the things that we've done throughout our entire lives. And so we have this security, knowing that whenever we approach God, regardless of the wrong things we continue to do, that God's not going to reject us. And so God doesn't look at communion as a way to maintain our salvation, as if it's some sort of ritual that we need to do in order to get God's good graces. It's something that he does he gives us to commemorate what he's done for us. You know, the terrible irony is that that which was to commemorate what God has done for us has turned into something that we do for God. That we've flipped this around and made it something that we, we do to please God, thinking that by eating bread and drinking wine that God is somehow gonna say, you know what, I know you did a lot of really bad things in your life, never mind. I'm just going to overlook that because you ate that bread. That doesn't make any sense. Third, communion wasn't meant to be part of this stale ritualism that you often see in churches today. You know, a lot of people today in our culture associate communion with all the different rules and weird rituals that you need to perform in order to gain God's acceptance And, you know, when you look at the Old Testament, it's easy to see that there are tons of rituals, tons of laws that God prescribes, which as modern people looks really bizarre. But if you examine those things closely, you'll find that in most cases, those symbols, those rituals 
were meant to teach us about something Jesus would eventually do throughout his life and eventually on the cross. And so the New Testament tells us that these things that God prescribed in the Old Testament, these rituals, are merely a shadow of what Christ has done. And so the reality is here. No longer have to live and abide by those rituals because God crystallized that in the life of Christ. And, you know, it really, I think, uh, when you ask people, you know, so what do you think about church? A lot of times they think, well, it's all about rituals. And yet it's interesting that Jesus, during his ministry, made all of the Old Testament ritualism obsolete because that was for the Jewish people, not, not for us. And we have to ask ourselves, so how many rituals are we left with? There's really only two. One that you do once in your life, which is baptism, and another that you're supposed to do whenever you decide to do it, and that's communion. And so the New Testament is largely devoid of ritualism because God says, you know, I, I want you not only to worship, no longer to worship me based on, you know, this code of law or ethics. Now I want you to worship me based upon the Spirit of God and truth. And so he's given us, he's elevated our experience of worshiping God because of the presence he gives us of the Holy Spirit. So why do humans like rituals? I mean, despite this freedom that God now gives us, I think there's sort of this obsession with wanting to go back to these rituals. Why are we so obsessed with this? I think one would be that it's predictable. You know, relating to someone is really hard because it's unpredictable. You don't know how that person will respond. And so it's a lot easier to know that all I need to do are these three or four rituals when I enter God's presence and then I can leave knowing that I've done something. You know, instead, what God wants from us is a relationship. He wants to lead us. And he wants to give us guidance, which requires us listening to him, um, allowing him to enter into our lives, allowing him to speak into all areas of our life. I think the second thing is that rituals put the control squarely in our hands, which that's appealing, right? Because we don't like to feel helpless. We don't like to feel vulnerable. And so it grates against us to, to continually rely upon God and what he has to offer us. It's, it's much better. We would prefer to be able to do our rituals knowing that, okay, if I do these prescribed things, then God is almost obligated to give me whatever I want. And so I think that that's really the appeal of human rituals that we see. Well, <clears throat> Paul explains what communion is. In verses 23 through 26, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Good Lord. <laughs> in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this, uh, and, you know, whatever. <laughs> now... Um, the passage that he's uh, referring to here is actually given to us in one of the Gospels, Luke 22, verses 14 through 20. 
And uh, Jesus sets the context for this meal that he gives to us. He says, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And he took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. So the context here was the Passover meal that Jesus was celebrating with his disciples. So one of the really interesting things, if you study the Old and New Testament, are these Old Testament rituals and festivals which contain significance in that it predicts certain things that Jesus would do. And we're not just like creating these associations here based on our, you know, our understanding. But Paul actually tells us in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7, he says, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So he provides us this unique link where he looks at Jesus' life and he connects that with Passover, this meal that the Jews had been celebrating for, thou- for you know, over a thousand years. So let's turn to Exodus 12 real quick and look at this, this meal that God instituted. So a little bit of background. You know, we talked about Exodus a couple weeks ago. And... Um, You know, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, were enslaved in Egypt for about 400 years. And finally, God extracted them out of the land. He decided to free them from slavery. And in order to bring pressure upon Pharaoh, he sent several plagues. And and the final plague, he said, I want all of the Jewish people and, and, you know, even Egyptian people who believe in me, to celebrate this meal. And anyone who, who does exactly what I say in this meal will essentially escape judgment. And so he says to them, from now on, this month will be the first month of the year for you. Announce to the whole community of Israel, on the 10th day of this month, each family must choose a lamb or a young goat for a sacrifice, one animal for each household. He says, the animal you select must be one, a one-year-old male, either a sheep or goat with no defects. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel must slaughter their lamb or young goat at twilight. So he points out that, you know, this, this sheep or goat that they sacrifice, that it needs to be without defect. And this contains significance because... You know, if you study the Bible, one of the things that God prescribes to free us of our moral guilt is this thing called atonement, where the innocent dies on behalf of the guilty. And we see this happen over and over again throughout the sacrificial system which God instituted, where you're supposed to take this, this animal which is unblemished, indicating its innocence. And then you're supposed to slaughter this animal as a way to show that a life was paid in order to purchase another life. The innocent for the guilty. And, you know, when Jesus appeared at the beginning of his ministry, John the Baptist in John 1.29 sees Jesus and declares, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so he made that connection that Jesus was indeed this spotless lamb that the Passover meal predicted. Then he says that 
they should slaughter the lamb or the young goat at twilight. And so just as, you know, the sun is practically going down, as it's about to disappear over the horizon, at that moment then they're to slaughter the lamb. And, you know, this, of course, carries significance because it represents what Jesus did on the cross. You know, the Bible teaches that Jesus came and died for the wrongdoing we committed in our lives. Because there's really nothing that we can do, whether our good deeds or trying to avoid bad things for the rest of our lives, that's ever going to please God. That's not going to change this status that God declares upon us that we're guilty for the things that we've done wrong. And, you know, for some of us, that's kind of, I guess, a little bit uh, offensive. You know, why, why do I need forgiveness? You know, why, why, do, why do I have to stand judgment before God? I mean, after all, I feel like I'm a pretty good person. I mean, I'm not like perfect, but I'm definitely better than these people over here. And so we, you know, we find ourselves comparing ourselves to one another and thinking, well, I'm not a rapist or a murderer like this person over here. I'm not, you know, I'm not as bad as like Kim Jong-un. And you're like, oh, so that's the standard then. You know, a, a, a dictator. Anyone who's better than a dictator, they get entrance into heaven? Is that what we're saying? Or we're going to say that murder is the line? And so really the question becomes, what's the standard? You know, d- does God say, well, as long as you don't commit 3,561 sins, you're good. And you imagine, you know, walking in and, uh, you know, you, you get to that number and you're like, I'm one short. And then the guy behind you as he's walking up, God's like, no, 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 no. That was, you had 3,500,062, right? You can't come in. And you're just like, well, that seems a little bit arbitrary. Why would, why would God set an arbitrary standard? Well, the Bible says that God's standard is absolute perfection. That he bases his moral standard upon his own character. And so as a result, we all fall short of God's standard. None of us can stand before God and say that we're good enough. And so as a result, we need his forgiveness. God didn't abandon us to face judgment but he provided a way out by sending his son Jesus and providing mercy through his forgiveness. And so the slaughter of this lamb represents payment for our sins, for our wrongdoing. He says in verse 7 and 8, they're to take some of the blood and smear it on the sides of the top of the door frames of the house where they eat the animal. That same night, they must roast the meat over a fire and eat it along with bitter salad greens and bread without yeast. And so um, they're to take some of this blood and uh, apparently they're supposed to smear it on the sides and then on top of the doorframe or in some translations, the lintel. Not to be confused with a lentil, which is something you eat. And so uh, apparently they're supposed to take some of this blood and, you know, on the outside part of the door, take a hyssop branch and smear some of this blood on there, which is... You know, you look at that and you're like, God, this is so weird. It's like a weird blood cult. 
you know, it almost reminds you of like those primitive gods who are just, you know, bloodthirsty and they need a blood sacrifice in order to be appeased. So, you know, is God similar to these ancient Near Eastern gods who demand this? Well, if you study the Old Testament, one of the things that God explains to us is that blood signifies uh, a life force. You know, when ancient people who uh, were around, you know, animals that would get slaughtered. You know, today, whenever we get our chicken, you know, it's prepackaged, it's clean. Sometimes it has that weird juice in there that's kind of gross, right? But for the most part, it's pretty sanitized. But, you know, uh, if you live out in the country or if you live in a rural area, you know, you, you might see animals getting slaughtered. It's pretty gruesome. But, you know, in the ancient world, people were used to seeing this. And so what people would notice as an animal was being slaughtered is that as the blood would run out of this animal, its life force would also run out of it. And so God pointed out that the blood represents life. It was symbolic. And so the blood represented the sacrifice that had been made. It indicated that a life had been taken and that um, God would pass over this household because of the sacrifice that they made. Uh, in Exodus 12, verse 13, Moses points out, the blood shall be a sign for you in the houses where you live, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy, to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And so apparently that night, as uh, you know, God moved through the city of Egypt, or a city of, um, you know, in the, in the land of Egypt, uh, whenever he saw that a house was marked with this blood, it indicated that this life had been taken, and so he passed over that house, which is where we get the word Passover from. And Peter seizes upon this imagery in 1 Peter 1, verse 18 and 19. He says, You were not redeemed with perishable things, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And so he, again, links this with what Jesus has done. That Jesus indeed fulfills this picture of a spotless, innocent lamb who died for our wrongdoing. And then he says that you should eat it. And uh, this, it's interesting because at the, at the very beginning of this chapter, God says, make sure that you apportion enough for every single person in the household. And so you can imagine how some of these conversations would go as they're thinking about Passover. They're just like, how much, how much meat do you think we should get? Or what, kind of, what size animal should we get? And they're going around, they're like, you eat like a bird, so we're, just, you're, you're, probably, we're not even going to factor you in. And you're like, you, you're going to need a lot more. I've seen you take down a whole rotisserie chicken without any sort of napkins, right? Just licking your fingers the whole time. And so it was very clear that each person needed to partake of this sacrifice. And again, I think that contains significance that they needed to personalize the sacrifice that God made for them. And so, you know, some of you grew up in a church where you just maybe automatically assume that, you know, you're a Christian because your parents are Christians, you grew up going to church all your life, and yet there's never really been a time as you examine the time that you, you know, spent following God 
where you can think of actually having a personal encounter with God where you came to Him and received the forgiveness that God offers freely through Jesus. And so God says it's important that you personalize this, that you have an encounter with Him to receive this forgiveness. John 1.12 says, To all who believed Him and accepted Him, He gave the right to become children of God. God won't turn away anyone who asks Him for this forgiveness, and He will actually make you an adopted son or daughter. Finally, he says, this is a day to remember. Each year from generation to generation, you must celebrate it as a special festival to the Lord. This is a law for all time. So he's saying, I want you to celebrate this. And he was trying to reinforce in the minds of these Jewish people this concept of an innocent sacrifice being made on behalf of a guilty party. And it was in preparation for what Jesus would do. Now it's interesting, 1,400 years later, as Jesus uh, was being dragged to the authorities and finally pronounced guilty by Pontius Pilate, that as he was carrying his cross and eventually was, was crucified, that it was at twilight that he actually died. And it's interesting because extra-biblical accounts tell us that uh, on that day at twilight in the temple, the priest would take sort of a symbolic animal for the, for the entire nation and at twilight would slaughter that animal. And so some have actually speculated that at the moment that Jesus breathed his last breath, that at that very moment the priest was slaughtering the animal, the, the Passover lamb, giving us this incredible picture of what God was fulfilling through Jesus Christ. It's pretty amazing. I remember hearing this for the very first time. It just blew my mind. I never thought that there was anything like this in the Bible. And yet God provides this sort of stuff, this prophecy, in order to to give us validation that he is indeed the one who gave us these words. That it wasn't just human human beings putting this to to pen and paper. So the purpose of communion comes right out of our passage. He says, first of all, in chapter 11, verse 24, that we should do this in remembrance of what he has done. And so one of the reasons why we gather to take communion is to remember the sacrifice that God has made for us. And, um, you know, when you strip away the rigid ritualism, it really restores the beauty of communion. You know, this isn't something you do to maintain your salvation. This is something that God gives us to commemorate how much he's done for us. I remember uh, a couple years ago, I taught at this uh, yearly camp that we have uh, where we have, you know, hundreds of high school students. And I had the opportunity to be able to sit around a fire uh, late after a teaching and uh, share communion with these students. And um, just hearing the students pray and thank God for the life that he had saved them from. I mean, it just brought tears to my eyes. Just thinking about how amazing God is and what he's, what he's done for all of us. And so it's an opportunity for us to reflect on how gracious and how loving God is. That instead of giving us punishment, instead of giving us what we deserve, he gave us mercy and love. 
Secondly, it's an opportunity to proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. He says that in verse 26. And so it's an opportunity for us to make a public declaration that we take our stand with Christ. And it's a way of looking forward to the day when Christ will return. So, you know, whenever we have communion in my home church, which uh, we do occasionally, uh, usually when I lead it, I say, now, if you haven't had the opportunity to receive Christ personally, then, you know, you can just pass this along. You don't have to take it. But before it gets to you, you still have an opportunity to get right with God. So I'd encourage you to do that. And so it's a proclamation. It's an acknowledgement not only that I am a follower of Christ, but that Christ will one day return. And he's not saying that we need, you know, God never prescribes that we do this, you know, every single week, every single month. He says, whenever you drink it or whenever you eat this bread. And so you might ask yourself, so when are we supposed to do it? And the answer is, whenever you do it. However often you want to do it. Um, And third, the purpose of communion is for fellowship. Earlier in chapter 10, verse 16 and 17, Paul says, when we bless the cup at the Lord's table, aren't we sharing in the blood of Christ? And when we break the bread, aren't we sharing in the blood of Christ? And so this word sharing is actually the Greek word koinonia, which means to have in common, to share, or to fellowship. And so it's an opportunity for us to gather together and express the unity that we have in Christ. You know, we look out into our world and There are all different types of ways that I think our culture and our world tries to create this unity between diverse parties. You know, you you have in schools, you know, people uh, from all different walks of life, all different types of races, and the administration wants it that way because they think that proximity equals unity. And yet, there's often a, a huge division between people within schools or even within neighborhoods. And so, no, no amount of effort on our part, artificially trying to create unity, is ever going to forge real unity. It's something that only we can have in Christ. And that's one of the real great things that you see in our fellowship is just the growing diversity of people in this room. You know, when I first came around in 1999 to the college group, that was a long time ago. I was like the only brown person walking into that room. Just a sea of white people. And it didn't bother me, but it was just like, it'd be kind of cool if there was a little bit more diversity here, some other brown people around. And, um, you know, it's awesome now to be in a community like this and to look around and see people from, from different socioeconomic uh, classes, people uh, who are coming from different walks of life, people from different countries um, who emigrated. And so it's amazing the kind of unity that we can have with one another. It's not something that's artificial. It's not something that's based around a hobby or some common interest. It's based and forged upon what Christ has done for us, the commonality that we have in him. I remember, uh, you know, we have our yearly vacation. I remember the first time I went on vacation, and I had to room with this uh, this dude who was like 
a punk rocker from Westerville. And, you know, I grew up just roving the streets of Chicago, getting into trouble, doing all types of crazy things. And uh, we were just really as different as two people could be. And I remember, you know, he would play like punk rock songs for me, and I just listened in amazement as if I was listening to strange sounds coming from distant galaxies. <laughs> and, you know, even though we were incredibly different, one of the things that I came out of there with was just how unified we felt, even though we had very little in common. And it amazed me because, you know, all these people that I knew from my past who I had so much in common with, I never felt that kind of unity with them that I did with this dude. And that's what, what God can offer us through fellowship with him and with one another. And he says, and though we are many, we all eat from one loaf of bread, showing that we are one body. And so typically, you know, whenever uh, I'm leading communion, I like to bring one loaf, one piece of bread. And each person breaks off a piece. None of that sliced bread stuff, right? And it's to indicate that, you know, we're, we're all from one body, that we are unified in Christ. So this brings us full circle back to Paul's point in the passage. He concludes in verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Apparently, this division and selfishness was, uh, according to Paul, an unworthy manner in which they were taking communion. He says, a man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment upon himself. That's why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. Which may be a euphemism for people dropping dead. Whoa. Um, now, when he says that people are drinking judgment upon themselves, he's not saying that God is going to send them to hell. We know that once we receive Christ, that we no longer face judgment. And so when we look at the word judgment here, we need to see this in the context of the passage. In verse 32, Paul explains to us that what he means by judgment is that when we are judged by the Lord, we're being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So what he's talking about here is discipline. And it probably happened in increasing measure where... God may have sent people to them saying, you know, you guys are being really selfish and it's really hypocritical that you guys are, are celebrating communion, which is supposed to express unity and love, selfless love, and yet you guys are disunified and showing up acting selfish. It's hypocritical that you guys are doing this. And so apparently, at one point, uh, things had escalated and God either passively or or actively brought uh, discipline upon these people. Now, we're not exactly sure uh, why they fell ill or why some of them died. It may be God's passive judgment that, you know, because they were drinking too much, that he gave them over to uh, an, a lifestyle of alcoholism. It's not clear. Um, either way, I don't think we should try to interpret this too much to say that, you know, anyone who falls ill, God is judging them for something they're doing wrong. That's not what this passage is about. And he says a man ought to examine himself. What he means by this is that, you know, each individual, as they come to fellowship, 
They should consider whether or not they're coming there with a selfish attitude or with this attitude of superiority. And if, and if we find in our hearts that we have that, we should turn to God and repent of it, change our attitude. And then he says in uh, the last two verses, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone's hungry, he should eat at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I'll give you further directions. So he's like, eat at your house and uh, make sure that you're not being greedy. Okay, let's draw a few points of application. I think, first of all, God gave us an amazing picture of what Jesus would do through the Passover meal. And, uh, you know, if you're new here investigating Christianity, uh, one of the things you'll find is that the Bible contains hundreds of these prophecies in the Old Testament. And so I would, I would continue to investigate if I were you, looking at what God has to offer in terms of evidence. Second, communion gives us an opportunity to express the unity and love that we share with other believers. And so maybe this week at uh, your prayer meeting or something like that, you can have an opportunity to share communion with one another and to um, spend time reflecting on what God has done for you. And finally, we shouldn't participate in fellowship carrying around a selfish attitude. And, you know, Paul is going to develop this further as we uh, move through 1 Corinthians. All right, well, why don't we just uh, spend some time in prayer and then we can hang out afterward. Yeah, communion is an awesome thing that you've given us, Lord. A great symbol of uh, what your son Jesus has done. And um, we uh, thank you that when you give us uh, a ritual like that, that it's uh, filled with meaning and symbolism and, and content. It's not something that we just mindlessly do. Um, <clears throat> I pray that, um, I don't know, the, at the heart of this, that we would become people who uh, view our times of fellowship with one another as opportunities to be able to serve and love one another, not as an opportunity to be uh, selfish or to be um, cliquish in the way that we uh, hang out with people. Uh, so I pray that we would examine ourselves and see whether or not uh, those are things that we are maybe perpetuating in our community and that we would have a change of mind. pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.